Welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. Tomorrow, we're celebrating the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who lived from January 15, 1929 to April 4, 1968, 39 far too short years. Anyone born at the same time as Dr. King would be turning 92 this year, which means that for all the big moments and communications he was a part of, among the biggest in the life of our country, I figured anyone who was there, who was with him, who could really tell us about what happened, the only place to find those people is in history books and biographies. That is, until I met Dr. Clarence B. Jones. Yes, I will have uh, uh, celebrated my 90th birthday. I wasn't sure that I would ever make that journey. Today, Dr. Jones is the director of the University of San Francisco's Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice. But rewind the clock about six decades, and you're looking at a brilliant young lawyer, the first African-American to be named an allied member of the New York Stock Exchange, and... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s personal friend, attorney, advisor, and speechwriter. And when I say speechwriter, I'm talking about... So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. We're talking to Dr. Clarence B. Jones, the man who wrote the first seven and a half paragraphs of that speech. Well, (laughs) I think that's good enough for an introduction. We're celebrating MLK Day with a special two-part episode with Dr. Jones. Today, we're talking about how he met the Reverend and his role in publishing another landmark piece, The Letter from Birmingham Jail. And then tomorrow, we'll talk about the speech at the March on Washington and how it changed everything in this country. And what Dr. King might have to say about the change that still needs to happen in this country today. Let's begin. Good afternoon, Dr. Jones. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon, Winston. I'm glad I can participate in this uh, opportunity that you've provided. Absolutely. It's a privilege to have you on, and and we're very much looking forward to the conversation. So I I would love to know, uh, growing up in the the 30s, 40s, 50s, going to Columbia University uh, for your undergraduate education and Boston University for your law degree, tell us a little bit about what life was like for you uh, as a black man in the 30s, 40s, and, and 50s as you were growing up? Well, thank you for asking me that question, because uh, it's important for you to remember my, and for your audience to, to know that I am, I am the only child of domestic household servants, and I lived with them in the servants' quarters until the age of six, which was in 1937. And my mother was a very religious person, and she wanted to place me in a boarding school. So I was placed in the care of a, uh, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, the Catholic order, who um, 
maintain mission schools in New Mexico and Arizona. So on the plaque of the school that I attended when I was six years old was a school for indigent, meaning poor, colored boys and Indians. That's what it said. From 1937 until I was uh, the age of 14, I um, received a superior education comparatively as to what I probably would have received had I gone to a, a, a publicly segregated Negro school, whatever that might have been. So then when I went to public school, Palmyra High School in South Jersey, 70% white, 30% Negro or, or colored, as we may have been referred, I did reasonably well in high school. I was the uh, president of my, uh, president of the Honor Society. Graduate, I was the valedictorian of my class and voted by my classmates, 70% white, 30% Negro, as most likely to succeed. And I went on from there to get a um, scholarship the old-fashioned way, you know, to go to uh, Columbia College. And then, of course, uh, what happens in the real world in my third year, my mother was stricken, uh, taken to the hospital. On January 8th, my birthday, when I was taking an examination at Columbia on January 8th, and she died uh, April 4th. That was the biggest hit I took as a young man at that time. It remains a wound uh, with a scar that has uh, healed but is still tender. And I went on to law school and uh, ended up going to Boston University Law School and specialized in, um, uh, among other things, in copyright law and did reason did very well. And my copyright professor thought I might, if I was interested, he might could get me a job out in the, the West Coast and I was in Boston. So I ended up moving to California to be able to take a job with the review uh, productions. And that's where I was living in California when I uh, met Martin Luther King Jr. So now it's the year 1960, and on February 17th of that year, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is accused of falsifying his Alabama income tax returns in the years 1956 and 1958. Clarence Jones, this young, newly minted lawyer living out in L.A., is one of the attorneys who ends up on the case. So tell us about that, uh, that first time that you met him. I know that you defended him in a tax fraud case. Well, I met, yeah, I met Dr. King on uh, in, the, in the second week of February, 1960. I'd like to tell everybody I was minding my own business when uh, Judge Delaney, Hubert Delaney, for whom I had great respect, called me one Thursday evening, and he said, Clarence, you know, this uh, civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., has been indicted by tax evasion for, uh, and fraud for lying on his uh, income tax return. So I listened 
And I'm his, I'm, his, I'm his chief defense counsel, and I had three other lawyers, two tax lawyers from Chicago and, and a young lawyer from Birmingham, from Montgomery, Alabama, by the name of Fred Gray. And I listened, I said, well, you have, you have lawyers that are far more experienced than I am. He says, no, 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 I need you to take responsibility for coordinating the legal research. Now, initially, I thought he was saying, well, you go to the library in California and then send me the you know the results of your work. He says, no, 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 you have to actually go to Montgomery, Alabama. And I said, I, I can't do that. Now, it was hard for me to say no to him because he was someone that I respected, giving me a major recommendation to go to Boston University Law School. And he was profoundly disappointed. Then that was on a Thursday night. And early the next morning, Friday morning, he says, Clarence, I did not know at the time of our conversation, last night being Thursday, that Dr. King, he's in the air now. He's on his way to Los Angeles. Early that evening, or like late that afternoon, like 6 p.m. that day, on a Friday, second week in February, my doorbell rings. And there was Martin Luther King Jr. with an aide of his, Reverend Bernard Lee, at my door, comes into my home. You have to understand, at that time, in 1960, he had been on the cover of uh, Life magazine. He was, you know, very popular. And he comes to my home. Excuse me, Judge Delaney said so many nice things about you, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, we Negroes who are struggling for our freedom in the South, we need young African-American lawyers like yourself as uh, to assist us as we are struggling for our freedom. So I said to him, I said, well, you couldn't get a better group of lawyers than you have assembled to defend you, Judge Hubert Delaney and uh, the two lawyers from Chicago and Fred Gray. He said, yeah, but Judge Delaney told me this, told me that, and uh, we, we, we would like to impress upon you to help us if you can. So I listened. And, uh, and he was very passionate. Asked me some questions about myself, and I told him. Told him much of, some of what I told you, you know, my parents being household servants. My, the big hit of my mother dying when I was in college and so forth. And I told him, you know, when I was in the military, law school and all that stuff. And he leaves. Now... My wife at the time, who is now deceased, but who was the mother of four of my adult children today, her name was Anne. She says to me, what do you think that you are doing? That you can't help this man that came all this distance to ask for your help. And I said, Anne, you know, you, you, have, you don't have your facts straight. Just because some Negro preacher got his hand caught in the cookie jar stealing, that ain't my problem. And she was angry at my response. I was on a Friday night. Dr. Ken's secretary invited me on Saturday to come to hear him preach. Now, I never heard Dr. King preach before. I mean, I've seen him maybe uh, on television. I wasn't even defensive about it because I was in law school. You know, why, why would I be watching some Negro preacher on television? You know, when I was in law school during that period of time, and he was in Montgomery and doing this and doing that. So I go to this, uh, the largest black Baptist church in, a, in the largest middle class, black middle class community in 
Los Angeles, Baldwin Hills. That's where the, if you were a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, if you were a successful business person, school person, music, whatever it is, you, you probably lived in uh, Baldwin Hills. It was the black equivalent of Beverly Hills at the time. And he speaks to this church of about 1,300 people. He's introduced by the resident preacher. I'd never heard Dr. King speak before, ever. He gets up to the pulpit after he's introduced, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the text of my sermon today is a role and responsibility of the Negro professional to aid our less fortunate brothers who are struggling for their freedom in the South. So when I heard that, I thought, this is one smart dude. He had come to the church of leading black professionals to deliver his message. Now, when he spoke, it was a mythical, mesmerizing experience. I had never heard no human being with two legs and a mouth anybody speak like that. It was mesmerizing. I mean, the words just, just like, it was like unbelievable. And then he paused at a moment in this very compelling and passionate delivery of the speech. And he says, and for example, there's a young man sitting in this church today. My friends in New York, lawyers for whom I have great respect, tell me that this young man, a young lawyer, his brains have been touched by Jesus. So I'm, I'm paying attention then. Because I'm thinking about, well, whoever this young man he's talking about, when this church service is over, I'm going to find out who he is. And he goes on and says, they tell me that when this young man does legal research and goes in the law library and does work on any legal issue. He goes all the way back to the time of 1066. William the Conqueror and the Magna Carta. Now, right there, I stopped. I'm saying, what does that Negro preacher know about? Magna Carta and, uh, and so forth. And they tell me that when this young Negro lawyer writes down what he finds on the page, the words are so compelling, they just jump off the page. That's when I thought, well, when this church service is over, I'm going to find out who this dude is. Because if he's that good, I need to know him. You know? And then he paused for a moment, and he said, you know, but I had a chance to meet this young man the other night at his home in Altadena, California. And I said to myself, oh, no, Lord. And I shrank down in the space in the pew of the church. And he began to tell 1,300 strangers some things that I, I told him. Now, what, what, what I told him, they weren't, they weren't state secrets, but I didn't think he was going to share them with 1,300 people. Now, he talked about me and my mother. And then he did something very unfair, which I write about and I've written about and spoke about several times. Dr. King was a very learned person, and he, there's a poem by Langston Hughes called it's a, it's a poem of a, uh, that a mother is, writes to her son called Life Ain't Been No Crystal Stair. And in this poem, the actor in the poem was like my mother, who was a domestic household servant. And Langston Hughes writes about this woman 
cleaning the staircase. And then she pauses and she speaks about her son. Don't you give up, son. You know, mama is doing this for you. Life ain't been no crystal stair. Well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tax in it. Boards torn up places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time, I's been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you stop now. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find this kind of hard. But I'm still going, boy. I'm still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. And that's when I began to cry in the pew of the church. Sermon is over. I'm still emotionally shaken, raw. And I, as I go over to look at Dr. King, it was, I said, very popular at this time, standing on those chairs to the pulpit to the church, uh, handing out autographs. As I come in eye distance of him, but ear shot. He says, you know, I never mentioned your name, Mr. Jones. I never mentioned your name. And as I got closer to him, he got close. He said, you know, I never mentioned your name. Sometimes we Baptist preachers, we have to use an example. I never mentioned your name. I didn't say anything. I just walked over, walked over and grabbed his uh, right shoulder. And I said, Dr. King, when do you want me to go to Montgomery, Alabama? He was, he was in the, the language of the street today as the baddest dude I ever met. When most people think of Dr. King's greatest writing, they of course think the I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington. And we'll get there, but along the way we need to make a stop at another magnificent piece of literature the man wrote. One that he wrote on scrap pieces of paper while sitting in a jail cell. It's April 12, 1963. The city of Birmingham has obtained a court order prohibiting Dr. King and other civil rights activists from parading without a permit. But they do it anyway. And on the same day, eight white clergymen in the South publish an open letter called A Call for Unity, criticizing these civil rights demonstrations. Dr. King responds, and that's where we get the famous Letter from Birmingham Jail. And Dr. Jones had a big role to play in this one too, so he'll tell us all about it. Uh, he was arrested on Good Friday, April 12th, 1963 after there'd been a long meeting in the A.G. Gasson Motel about whether he and other Negro local civil rights leaders and ministers should lead a protest against segregation in downtown Birmingham. Now, in the Baptist church, you know, there are certain uh, days of the year, like uh, Easter, Palm Sunday, Christmas, and, well, I don't care what you're doing as a minister, you had better be in your pulpit. So I began to understand the hesitancy of uh, some of the other ministers. I mean, Dr. King had his father in the pulpit. 
with some of the other ministers, you know, they were the sole ministers of the church. And to be absent as the church leader in the Baptist church on uh, on Easter, that, that, that is, how are you supposed to do that? So anyway, Dr. King, uh, he's jailed. So I go in to see him, actually. Uh, I was one of two lawyers in Birmingham who represented Dr. King. One was the dean of the uh, African-American lawyers in Alabama. Oh, God, I'm getting old. I can't think of Arthur Shores. And he was out of town. And so I was in town. And so I was the only lawyer permitted to go and visit Dr. King. And I go in to see him because already we locally are getting pushback from the parents of young people who followed Dr. King into the, on the march and who were jailed. And they were clamoring to have their kids released on bail. So I had been talking to Harry Belafonte on the phone. And Harry Belafonte says, well, when you go in to see Martin, you got to tell him, you gotta, he's got to give us some names of people we can talk to, because, you know, the AFL-CIO and United Automobile Workers, the unions and local hospital workers and district, they were sending us money. And the Na- National Council of Churches, but it wasn't enough to cover the bail money. You know? Hundreds of young people were bailed. So I go in to see Dr. King, and he wouldn't he wouldn't have none of it. He wouldn't even listen to I mean, they had respect for me, but he says, No, have you seen this? I mean, he preempted my discussion about the urgency of bail. He says, Have you seen this? So I said, What is this? And he holds up the full page ad that was appeared in the Birmingham Herald, signed by a group of uh, white clergymen. It's an open letter to the citizens of Birmingham. It's a letter to him, Dr. King. We know we have some issues of race in our community, like other communities, but we are making progress and we're doing this. And these things take time. And the worst thing we need at this time is an outside agitator like you who has no patience. There's no patience and wants to stir up our local citizens uh, to prevent us from arriving at a peaceful solution to our racial problems. And he was really upset about this. And he ha- he was so upset that he had uh, started to write a reply to the ad. And he put his reply in the form of piles of paper, like uh, he written on piles of uh, toilet paper, paper towels, blank spaces of old newspapers, wherever he got to. Whatever you could get a blank space on. He said, now, when you, when you come back in to visit me, see, I was permitted to visit him twice a day. Bring me in some blank paper and give this to my secretary and so they can start writing this now. In those days, before 9-11, you know, nobody, I mean, the, 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 the people in the jail, they knew where I was. And I, I, I you know, when I went into the, it was in the courthouse, I just, I just showed them my ID with my license and so forth. I think they did a, I think they did a light pat down. Uh, but they didn't do any uh, very extensive pat-down, didn't ask me to open any shirt or take off my... didn't do anything. So over the next five days, several days, visiting him twice a day, I would bring in him, bring to him blank sheets of paper for him to write on, and then I would take out what he had written on the paper under my shirt and tie and give it to his secretary. And this went on for a period of five or six days. 
Now, honestly, as I tell people, I never even thought about it. I had too many other things to think about. Most of the problem raising money, bail money. I'm sitting in Dr. King's office in Atlanta about six weeks later, and his secretary, Dora McDonald, says, Oh, Clarence, I'm so glad you're here because Christianity and Crisis and other people are asking. Uh, they want to reprint this. And you and Stanley Levison, you handle all these matters for Dr. King, so would you handle this? So that's it. The first time I took a mimeograph copy of what he had written, I'd never written and seen it for the first time. I just sat down in a chair in his office, and I read what he had written in a jail. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. And as I read it, knowing the circumstances, since I had been the person who had taken and visited him in the jail, when I read it, and I read what he wrote, I said, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. And just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Now, as I said to him in person, I said, Martin, you don't get any credit from me for being able to quote from the scripture. You got a PhD in theology, you're supposed to be able to do that. But brother, I mean, he was he was quoting from literature. He was quoting from Hegel, he was quoting from poetry. You know? And he was quoting verbatim. You know? And it was and it was par- powerful. I mean, it was like it, it was like mesmerizing. So I, I sat there literally in that chair reading. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, 
but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? The letter from the Birmingham jail was like equivalent to, it may sound sacrilegious, it was equivalent to the, the Communist Manifesto that Karl and Engels wrote in 1848 that literally uh, ignited Europe, you know, caused the overturn of uh, the French nobility, overturned many empires. It was, a great, it was our nation's greatest call to conscience. And one of the things that's most powerful he deals with something that's even relevant today. This question about time and, and, and our Negroes, uh, as we were referred to, are we rushing and why we be patient? Why we can't wait? That segment of that letter in which he eloquently describes what it means to be a black person in America in 1963 talking about the experience of his own children not being able to go to an amusement park, talking about what it means to be black, to drive an automobile across country and not being able to stop, talking about how you see white people talk to your parents and your wife and yourself in such denigrating terms. And at the end of this, he says, and you see uh, our, 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 our cup." Of endurance runs over. That's, that's why we can't wait. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the sting dots of segregation to say wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. You know, I, I don't, I haven't done it in a while, but I used to teach a course at the University of San Francisco on the, on the art of advocate speech writing. These are people who write speeches. In order to get them to understand how to write a good speech, I wanted them to read some of the great speeches. And 
history, you know, uh, Mark Anthony's speech in Shakespeare, the speech at the Peloponnesian War, breaking the Peloponnesian War. I mean, great speeches. John Kennedy's speech, you know, when he was inaugurated. Martin Luther King Jr.'s, trust me, trust me, that letter from the Birmingham jail stands as one of the great pleas for social justice in the English language. It is as if he were nailing an updated version of Martin Luther's plea. It was extraordinary. Nothing compares to it. Thanks so much for joining me in this conversation with Dr. Clarence Jones. Tomorrow, on MLK Day, look out for part two, where we'll talk about the I Have a Dream speech. We'll talk about Dr. Jones' role in writing it, what it was like being with Dr. King the night before the big day, and some incredible things you probably didn't know about when he delivered that speech. We'll also discuss the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and what Dr. King might have to say about the battle still being fought for social justice today in 2021. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until tomorrow.